You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Hi, I'm Jay Harwood from the New York Mets. Welcome to our Mets alumni podcast. I'm proud to be sitting here with Ed Crane Paul, one of the stars of the 69 World Championship team. Eddie, going into the spring of 69, the Mets had lost over 100 games five different times. In 68, the team was 73 and 89. Do you have any indications going into the spring of 69 that it could be a special year? We really didn't know in the spring, but obviously uh, under the leadership of Gil Hodges, uh, when we had meetings in spring training, he kept telling us, that if we improved in the one-run games that we played, we made fewer mental mistakes, fundamentally played the game sound, we can get to 500. And that was our goal when spring training started. And under Gill, you know, you had to play his way or you, that he found a reason to get rid of you. Somebody said, too, he mentioned something that if the pitchers could win one more game, that we would be better. Is that something he would say? Yeah, he's very positive. Uh, Gil was a very positive leader, and, and unfortunately, uh, you know, we had him for a couple of years. We could have won a couple more pennants. But in spring of 69, he knew that we had some young players that had improved the previous year. We did make a, an improvement, but he wanted to see us get to 500. You know, you don't talk about a pennant right race when you only win 70-some-odd games. I mean, you've got to get yourself to 500. We hadn't been there. What made him such a special manager? All the guys I spoke to were just raving about him, and he was this and that. Was there one quality or two qualities that made him special? There were many. Uh, he was a good leader. He was very strong. He had uh, leadership qualities where you played his way or you, you, know, you, you weren't going to play for him. Uh, one set of rules for everybody, and he enforced the rules. He didn't look the other way. He never tried to embarrass a player. He took you in his own office when he wanted to say something to you, and he reamed you. He let you know what was going on, and, you know, he'd let you answer. And, of course, it was his way. I mean, you, you couldn't convince him. He was very strong. I guess that was that Marine background he had over there, and you had to learn to respect him. Do you think, could any other manager have led the team to the championship that year? I don't think so, because he never made any mistakes. The one thing about Gil, he did everything positive to help you win. He made adjustments. He made defensive changes. He put pinch hitters up there. Remember, the players are the ones that have to perform, but the manager has to put you in a position to do well. And Gil was great. We could have won another pennant, you know, probably in 73. We don't make certain mistakes coming down the stretch. We could have had two World Series. There were some signs during the year that it was a special, you know, I guess the Mets never played well against the teams from the West and looked up to 27-9 and nine against the Padres, Giants, Dodgers and Giants, and when you get to mid-August, and this team is still, you know, nine and a half games out of first place, and last uh, 49 games, 38 and 11. What happened the last part of the year? Well, I think everybody got well, and of course we played really well yeah. the second half of the year. I think uh, once we got to the 500 uh, situation, we exploded. Everybody put it all together. It was fun going to the ballpark for the second half of the season. It was the first time and I had played since 1962 with the Mets, that we had meaningful games late in the year. When you get to the All-Star break and you're eliminated, you know, it's kind of discouraging the second half of the year. But when under Gill, we were at 500, and we just started playing great. The second half, we started to win. Baseball was fun. It was the first time it was fun for me in, in a number of years. For five, six years, we'd lost 100 games. Baseball's not fun when you lose. How was it playing, to go back on those teams that you lose 105 times, they said, how was it playing on those kind of teams? 
Very frustrating. I, I tell you, I think, uh, you know, you can see now in the New York teams that, uh, you know, have been losing, you know, the players get frustrated. You know, when you come up for an environment as a youngster and you're winning all the time because if you're a fairly decent player, your ball clubs win. That's the fun of baseball is to go out there every day. It's a team game. And, of course, individual performance really doesn't have to stand out. So when you have a bad day, you're covered by some of your teammates and you win at the end of the day and you've got something to celebrate. When you lose, everybody's looking to point fingers at everybody else. There's reasons that you lost and you were probably part of it. And of course, that's very frustrating when you go out there every day. Your records don't mean anything. At the end of the year, when you finish last, people don't enjoy it. People want to be on a winning ball club and getting to the ballpark on a winning team, it's something you look forward to from the night before. After the ball game, you're already preparing for the next day. When you lose, everyone gets a bad attitude and it's really frustrating. There were some signs at the end of the year would be especially something. What do you remember about the you know, doubleheader win in Pittsburgh when both won nothing games and the pitchers knocked in both runs and the other one would call and struck out uh, 19 and Spode hits two, two at home was to win the game. Those were pretty special games. Well, they were special and I think we had a lot of breaks going for us that year. Obviously, in a doubleheader in Pittsburgh when you have the pitchers you know, win the ball games for us, one nothing. And one of those pitches, I think, was Jerry Kuzman, who in the beginning, he, he, you know, he was like an automatic out. But, you know, he worked hard. And uh, our pitchers drove in both runs. We win a game one nothing, one nothing against a hitting team like Pittsburgh. They were, they were one of the better offensive teams, and they could score three, four, five runs in a hurry. And we win that ball game. The other game, Steve Carlton strikes out all those guys, and the only guy that puts the bat on the ball is my roommate, Ron Sabota. He hits two home runs. And that was a miracle, you know, because Ronnie was in the lineup, out of the lineup. And, you know, Carlton was a great pitcher, Hall of Famer. And normally with his breaking ball, he can get you out, but Ronnie didn't strike out. I mean, he hit the ball out, hit two home yeah. runs. We win that ball game. But there were a lot of, you know, games that year that things went right for the Mets. Everything went right, but you know what? Winning does that. Everybody took Seaver, Kuzman, Gentry, but there were some guys like Cardwell and Coons and Jack DeLauro who did pitch bid games down the stretch. Cardwell did a great job for us, and uh, Jim McAndrew filled in right. very nicely. You know, they, he was not in the same caliber as the other three, but he was still a good pitcher. Today, in the market today, you know, when you win 12 games, 14 games, you're an outstanding pitcher. But, you know, when you're in the limelight back in those days, even Nolan Ryan... I mean, he was a great uh, pitcher potentially, but couldn't get an opportunity to pitch because those other three guys pitch on a regular rotation. So we, we skip ahead to the you beat the Braves three straight, and going into the World Series that year, you guys were prohibitive underdogs in, against Baltimore. Well, we were, and, and I'll tell you what, going into the World Series, we were positive to be able to win. We had a good ball club, and we had 25 guys. The, the offense really controlled the game and won the playoffs for us. We scored a lot of runs. The pitching went south. You know, the pitching gave up a lot of runs in the playoffs, and, you know, that was a concern for us because we were led by Seaver, Kuzman, Gentry all the year long. The pitching was outstanding. But, you know, when, when the Braves, who have a great hitting team, come in out and score six, seven runs a game, we still win. Nobody expected that from the offense. We switched lineups in the World Series. We go from our left-handed lineup, which scored all the runs, now to the right-handed. So we didn't know what to expect going into the World Series. Fortunately for us, Kuzman wins the biggest game, I feel, of the series. He wins the second game. 
we get beat the first game with Tom Seaver. If we lose the second game, it could have been four straight for Baltimore. Yeah, after the first game, I read that it was like Baltimore was kind of chippy after they won the first game. They thought that the series was theirs. They made some stuff in the papers. I feel like Frank Robinson said some things. And well, they did. Uh, they did, felt that way. Buford did the same thing as the first hitter of the game. He hits a home run, you know, and uh, you know it was a ball that might have been caught. It was a close play right. In, in right field. But, you know, when they win that ball game, they think they're going to take us when they beat the best pitcher in baseball. Tom Seaver was the best pitcher in baseball. You know, and now they're coming at the rest of the staff. And Kuzman shuts the door. To me, he was the best pitcher we had down the stretch. He was a clutch pitcher. And after the first game, I think the Mets just allowed five runs the last four games. And uh, we took him go back to Gil for a second. I think in the clinchy game, uh, Gil let Al Weiss hit in, in, in late in the game, which he could have pinched it for him. And he hits a home run to... Yeah, to tie the that, game. that was one of those things that uh, everything was going right for the Mets, and Gill had the intuition of, of keeping Al in there. Al was a good player, wasn't known for his home yeah. runs, and of course, I don't think he hit any during the course of the season, yeah. but he wound up hitting the home run in the World Series, right. and he hit two during that series. Right. So, you know, you let him hit. You know, confidence means a lot to guys, and, and Gill was good at, at bringing the most out of the players. Hey, what do you remember about the parade, Eddie? You know, it was like uh, very magical when you're coming up uh, Broadway and you see thousands of people out the windows throwing confetti and, and uh, you know, it wasn't like maybe today's fans who might be throwing beer cans and stuff like they did yeah. up in Boston. I mean, that would have been dangerous, but they were great fans. They loved us. New York was a magical time in 69. Uh, it's, it's something that people don't forget 50 years after the fact. Right now, people still want to talk about the Miracle Mets of 69. And to me, it's amazing. You, you didn't pay for any dinners that winter, huh? Not for a couple of years. <laughs> I mean, you can live off it. I mean, I'm still living off it 50 years later. I mean, when I walk down the streets, it's amazing that people still recognize you. That's the, that's yeah. the great thing about playing in New York. It's the greatest market. Today, the financial situation, you can make the same amount of money any place. But there's no city like New York. I remember watching the Ed Sullivan's show when you guys sang, sang on the air. That was unbelievable. We had a lot of fun with that. We also went to Vegas that year. Yeah. We spent uh, two and a half weeks in Vegas, and they wanted us to stay another two weeks. And most of us couldn't take it. We were not. We were not celebrities in the fact that we could sing and and. and what did you? Out. What was your act? What did you do? Well, we had some jokes. Uh, Phil Foster was the comedian, and he had these questions and answers. And we were supposed to be a comic, and then at the end we had a song that they rewrote rewrote the words to uh, the Impossible Dream, and they put baseball uh, words in it, and it was great. But we were supposed to be. Uh, uh, low and key, and, and we had background singers behind the stage kind of drowning us out. But what happened was when you have two shows at Caesar's Palace, the 8 o'clock and the 12 yeah. o'clock or whatever it was, you know, the, by the second show, we started getting louder and louder. We thought we were entertainers, <laughs> and we were drowning out the second half, you know. And, and I'll tell you what, it got a little embarrassing because most of us couldn't sing. Yeah. What, what uh, like, let me just go back to your first year, 1962. Let, let me start with something else. You got to be proud of after all these years. You still hold the record for the Mets, most games played, most pinch hits. You know, after all these years, you look back, you're still a big part of the Mets record book. Well, for a long time, until David Wright came by, after 30 years, yeah. he passed by a hits yeah. record. But uh, yeah, I mean, I am proud of that. I played in New York. I would have liked to play a couple more years, and it probably could have been a lot more productive because the second half of my career 
uh, I finally matured and really caught up with the league. And I was a better hitter the second half of the year, second half of my career. So I could have been much more productive. But, you know, being force-fed to the major leagues at 17 is not the easiest thing right. to do. They wouldn't even consider it today. But I was up in the major leagues, my opening night in the major leagues, Sandy Koufax pitches a no-hitter, strikes out 13 men. I went in the record book there, and I was sitting alongside of Casey Stangle, and I said, this is going to be a long career. I might be going back to college. <laughs> you know. But you know, that's the frustrating thing, because if you looked around the league and you look around baseball, there were so many Hall of Famers in the 60s and the early part of the 70s that I grew up with and had to play against. Well, tell me, what do you, you hear stuff about Casey, the comedian, the storyteller. I know he had an impact on your life. Uh, Casey was great, and I tell you, I loved playing for him. Um, he was a different type manager than Gil Hodges, but he was there for the young players, wanted to help you any way he could. He, he took a shine to the young guys and always wanted to see improvement. Now, I think that what happened is when, when Casey joined the Mets, we were looking for some way to get rid of that losing attitude, and Casey took a lot of the pressure off the players. And if the press came around, you couldn't talk to Casey because then he started talking theatrical uh, stuff that happened 50 years prior right. to it and really didn't understand what he was talking about. But in the locker room, he was straight to the point. We knew exactly what he was saying. He was always in the players' corners. He fought for us, got us more money. And if you produced for him, he was there for you. You told me one story, too, that you were going to get sent down and lose some money, right. and he went to the front office and would let him do that to you. That's correct, because uh, he knew of the situation. You know, money meant a lot to the players. Uh, there used to be a bonus situation in our contracts where if you stayed 90 consecutive days, you would get a bonus. And what the Mets tried to do in 1963 was I was at 77 days at the All-Star break, and if they sent me out, I wouldn't get my bonus. And Casey said, you have to go down and get a little experience. We'll send you out, you know, just like they send guys out for two or three weeks. You know, the Mets said, well, we're going down. And I knew my bonus was coming up after the All-Star break. When I mentioned it to Casey, he said, wait a second. We don't have to send you out on Sunday. We can wait till Thursday when the season starts. And then you'd have 90 days or 91 days. And he fought for the ownership, and he told them to pay me my bonus. They were trying to get three players up that year and not pay a bonus to any of us. Wow, that's crazy. Eddie, tell me about the Ed Crane Pool Foundation. How, how did that start? Well, I started it because as a diabetic uh, in the early years, um, you know, I wanted to do a lot of work to try and help research the, in development in right. uh, diabetes. So we did that. We played golf. A lot of, a lot of guys helped, volunteered along the way. We've done that. Now, the last couple of years, I've been doing a lot of work in autism because I have an autistic grandson, and we try to help that situation as we raise funds. And, and uh, of course, they have a lot of things going on physically and, and the health reasons. You know, you do things that can help other people. When did you, when did you start the foundation? What year did you Oh, in the 70s. 70s. We started when I was playing, and uh, it's been active over the years, and we've done a lot of goodwill. And, you know, it's so nice to see people that you've helped along the way or you've gone to foundations yeah. and they call you back later on. I still get invited to the same, same foundations. And, you know, it, it's nice to be uh, thought of as, in a positive vein. And your health has not been great the last couple of years. You're in search of a kidney. You can tell us, I mean, how, how does that work if somebody out here hears that 
you know, what, you know, what could they do? Or, or Well, I mean, the last couple of years, you know, with the diabetes, after a while, it takes effect on you. It, it eats up your system. And, of course, uh, it affected me. I, I lost a couple of toes on my foot. Um, you know, had an amputation there. So that was the first thought of it. And then they found out uh, my kidneys were affected. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, so we've been out searching for a kidney because doctors feel that I need a transplant. And uh, we've been looking pretty hard the last year, year and a half, and uh, we're looking for a donor, you know, because, uh, you know, if you go on the list, it could be 10 years on the list, and who knows if you have that much time. So we've been uh, going around in the newspapers. We've been very fortunate. People have helped us along the way to try to reach a donor, and uh, they can contribute. Right. And anyway, could you believe, like, next year's 50 years that it will happen? Well, I can't believe it because I feel good. Uh, mentally, I feel good, and of course, when you look around some of your teammates, we've lost a number of them, and of course, some of them are not feeling good, just like myself. It went very fast. The last couple of years, it really flew by, and I'm looking forward to seeing and, and, and having fun with the guys if they can come back. Thank you. Okay, Thank my you. pleasure. It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.